Hey, gang, your pal Tim here, doing something a little different this week. We've got a, a wonderful episode with our guest, uh, Aaron Grayson Sapp, uh, and uh, I can't think of a better way to set up the topic than this um, fairly long clip from a wonderful and fantastic uh, documentary that ran about uh, 10 years ago on Showtime called Full Color Football, all about the American Football League. And uh, give a listen, and uh, you'll understand why uh, this is a great way to set up this conversation uh, that we'll have uh, after uh, we hear this clip from Full Color Football. Here's the voice of Peter Coyote setting up uh, this week's topic. Give a listen, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. In July of 1964, the Civil Rights Act was signed, outlawing discrimination in public places. We must not approach this law and a vengeful spirit. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions. Divisions which have lasted all too long. The letter of the law changed instantly, but the spirit of the country would take time. In the South and Southwest, desegregation was far from what the law uh, required it to be. Six months after the Civil Rights Act was signed, the AFL All-Star Game was scheduled for New Orleans, a city without a professional sports team. We were trying very hard to, to acquire uh, either an NFL or AFL expansion franchise for the city. That's why the game was put down there to see what type of drawing power um, the AFL would have with an all-star game. Black players soon discovered that New Orleans' red carpet was for whites only. And the restaurants, the patrons didn't want us to sit anywhere near them or the, the coats, we'd hang our coats on the wall and say, hey, don't put your coat next to mine. I checked in and I hear in the background somebody ask a question, well, was that Ernie Ladd? And another guy in the background says, uh, no, Ernie Ladd's a bigger nigger than that. That's a, that lad is a big nigger. I get on the elevator to go to my room, and the elevator operator says, uh, you monkeys get in the back so everybody can get in. I said, you're an elevator operator, and I'm a monkey. We went out to get a taxi. Taxis were lined up out in front of the hotel. And Cookie Gilchrist, one of our players, says, hey, uh, we want a taxi. And the guy says, uh, we got to call y'all a colored cab. And Cookie says, hey, I don't care what color the cab is. I just want a taxi. Why can't we ride in one of these? So we decide we're going to visit the French quarters. The greeter standing there calling out to people, come in here, come in here. When we get close by, like a, like a mute. And we get to another door. We get ready to go in. This little guy standing there pulls out a gun. You are not coming in here. You niggas are not coming in here. As a black man, I cannot go through this indignity and play a game here. We were the last athletes are the last guys you want to try to intimidate. We decided to have a meeting. We decided, you know, I'm going to play. You always remember the funny things that happen in situations like this. 
They says, okay, we're not going to play, right? We're not going to play. So Abner Haynes said, now don't let me go home and turn on TV and see you guys playing. And I think then the question was, was the AFL going to scold them, go ahead and play the game without them, or were they going to support their players? And to the AFL's credit, they stepped up and supported their players and moved the game to Houston. The fourth annual American Football League All-Star Game switched from New Orleans due to a racial incident attracts a slim crowd of only 15,000 to Jepson Stadium in Houston, Texas. Keith Lincoln takes a pitch out around the right side. West Blockers do a great job clearing the way. San Diego fullback steps off 80 yards to register another touchdown for the West. The actual game was no Super Bowl, and the walkout was no Selma. But the AFL player boycott had a lasting impact. I don't think that's ever been done before. I don't think there's a case of a boycott of a, of a professional sport by the players. And certainly athletes at that time were a privileged few enjoying benefits that very few other blacks enjoyed. And for this group of athletes to jeopardize that position, I took a lot of courage. To have done anything else would have been a slap in the face of some of the civil rights marchers who were giving up a lot more than what we had given up. By 1965, America and the American Football League had come a long way. But there was still a long way to go. My general manager, Mr. Stedman, telling me, well, Abner, we don't condone what you did in New Orleans. And we think you led them. They wrote me a letter, two-page letter, explaining to me how a football player's role is not to help his people. All I'm supposed to do is to play football and keep my mouth shut. Within two days, two or three days, I was traded to Denver. You'd be surprised how many were out of the game within a year or two. I know Cookie Gilchrist's career went down the drain after that. But I'm more concerned with being a good dad. And my son's not here and 20 and 30 years later, how I chickened out and didn't have no backbone. It was time for some men to stand up and be counted. I think that's what we did. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, there it is. How are you, everybody? Uh, here's the formal introduction. My name is Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. How are you? Thank you for finding us. We appreciate it. And uh, thanks for uh, sitting through uh, what I hope is a uh, an excellent primer and set up for uh, a, a, a very interesting and informative and uh, important conversation that we have this week with our guest, Aaron Grayson Sapp. She, the author of the literally brand new book, came out just a couple of days ago called Moving the Chains, the Civil Rights Protest that Saved the Saints, that is the New Orleans Saints, 
and transformed New Orleans. And as you heard, this is a story of the uh, American Football League, 1965, right smack dab in the middle of its life. And the uh, the All-Star game that was scheduled uh, to be played in New Orleans. Now, this is a time when the New Orleans Saints didn't yet exist. And New Orleans was being considered as an expansion franchise uh, for either or both the American Football League. That's where kind of the, the stuff got started. And uh, ultimately, the NFL, uh, which is ironically what happened, uh, expansion by the end of the decade into New Orleans. But this story, as we'll hear with Aaron coming up in a few moments time, a very, uh, I think, underreported, underappreciated and uh, frankly, quite fascinating uh, background to uh, what became the New Orleans Saints. If you're a New Orleans Saints fan, uh, live in New Orleans or an NFL fan, uh, you know, football, et cetera. If you don't know this part of the story, which predates and precedes, uh, but not by much, the founding of the New Orleans Saints, well, uh, stick around because you're going to learn a whole lot about uh, the genesis uh, of this uh, franchise. Uh, and frankly, uh, a, a, a compelling part of the history of the American Football League, the AFL, uh, which, you know, to youngins out there, uh, you think you know the NFL today. Well, the AFC would not exist. <laughs> I did not be for the AFL. Uh, that's kind of what essentially uh, uh, got pushed together uh, in the, uh, the latter part of the 60s to become today's modern day NFL. A lot of new franchises since then, of course. But um, so, again, the uh, that clip comes from uh, the just absolutely uh, fantastic uh, multi-part documentary series that appeared on Showtime. Uh, I don't know if it's in the Paramount Plus library. I got to think it is. I hope so. Uh, if you streamers out there want to go find it. Uh, again, it was called Full Color Football. It's literally the history. Uh, and true to its name, lots of full color-ness uh, uh, on Showtime. of the. It was the history of the AFL, the American Football League. Peter Coyote. Uh, one of the great documentarian uh, voices or documentary voices, I guess, uh, is the narrator of it. Uh, you can hear, for example, his uh, his his uh, voice in the latest Ken Burns documentary on the uh, the uh, the sad and convoluted uh, story of the U.S. and then the Holocaust that was on PBS uh, last month. But Peter Coyote is probably the uh, the preeminent documentary voice these days. Uh, you heard voices of other important uh, figures. In this story, Dan Rather, uh, Dave Dixon, uh, a seminal character in this story, as we'll hear with Aaron in a couple of minutes, um, probably the uh, patron saint, if you will, of the saints, uh, and they're uh, coming to uh, New Orleans. Also, the patron saint of the USFL, the original USFL. Uh, check out our episodes uh, on that topic, uh, in, in, especially with um, uh, the great Jeff Perlman, uh, Dave Dixon, a uh, founding a component of the USFL, uh, but some other great names, some uh, rem uh, easily remembered, some not. Uh, Larry Eisenhower of uh, the Boston Patriots in there. Uh, Ernie Warlock, uh, Warlock, Warlick, excuse me, of Buffalo, the Buffalo Bills of the AFL. Warlock, sorry, which is coming out of uh, <laughs> Halloween. Ernie Warlock. Uh, Earl Faison uh, of the uh, San Diego Chargers uh, with a very uh, a blunt assessment of what was going on in New Orleans at the time. Abner Hayes, probably the most um, underappreciated uh, personality in all of this story. He 
of the Dallas Texans and then the Kansas City Chiefs at that time in 1965. Our episode number three guest, Michael McCambridge, kind of setting the tone, is quoted in there. Uh, Jack Kemp of the uh, old Buffalo Bills uh, in this uh, in that clip and Ron Mix of the then San Diego Chargers. All of those people uh, kind of sort of setting the tone for what was the background and the uh, the follow through of the 1965 American Football League All-Star Game and the boycott, the protest and all the, the drama around it and uh, and what came of it. Uh, and in, in many cases, uh, a large part of that, the uh, New Orleans Saints uh, finally emanating out of all of that. Uh, but it's a twisted and uh, uh, convoluted and uh, not so direct story. And uh, we get into all of that with Aaron, Grayson Sapp, our guest this week. Uh, were the Saints the direct result of this uh, boycott? Uh, did things change? Have they changed in New Orleans, uh, in football, um, uh, in the NFL? Uh, questionable. Uh, we get into all those dynamics as well. Uh, regardless of uh, of any of those answers, a uh, an intriguing story. Uh, and one that needs uh, and could benefit from a little bit more uh, spotlight. And we uh, certainly uh, shine that uh, this week on this story and our guest, Aaron Grayson Sapp. The book is called Moving the Chains, the Civil Rights Protest that Saved the Saints and Transformed New Orleans. Uh, And that is the book that uh, Aaron has written. It is published by LSU Press. And uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about it and, of course, uh, you can find a, uh, a copy of it uh, wherever fine books are found. Uh, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 284. There'll be a convenient link there for you to purchase it as well. And uh, stay tuned. A great conversation with Aaron, Grace, and Sapp in a few moments' time. Uh, a promotional message from, let's see, this week our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, Springfield, I believe it is. It's 417 Helmets. Dot com 417 helmets 417 helmets.com collectible helmets and more lots of great stuff in there uh custom helmets is is largely what uh, Judd's been pivoting to of late um you want stuff made uh for your uh your company uh your uh, organization um perhaps your high school or your your grade school uh maybe it's even for another sport or some other maybe it's a birthday kind of celebration all you, there's no there's no excuse to not make a customized mini helmet for whatever uh you've got in mind just as long as it uh, doesn't violate people's rights i guess in terms of uh logos and trademarks and that kind of stuff but uh just go to the website 417helmets.com and just search the uh just click on the collectible uh, excuse me the custom helmets tab and you'll get a sense of uh, how to spec it all out and how Judd and his team uh, can make you and delight you with your own customized mini helmet. And they're made from the finest materials, the same materials that go into the actual uh, real life football helmets you see there on the field. The, the Shut, uh, uh, Riddell, uh, all these other uh, great manufacturers, uh, they make these uh, mini helmets uh, components and uh, Judd and his team uh, can customize one for you uh for a fair price for sure but look if you don't want something custom you can get stuff from various uh, uh leagues of uh of yesteryear as well as today so for example you want to uh celebrate the old world, world football league or the xfl the original version thereof uh the old uh, and original usfl uh world league of american football uh, all those kinds of helmets and more 
uh, historically are available for you at 417helmets.com. But maybe even stuff of today you might be interested in. If you're interested in, for example, college football, well, there's a huge array of not only NCAA helmets, but also NAIA helmets, those smaller colleges that uh, uh, have uh, wonderful logos and stuff. I'm actually eyeing myself uh, some of the TCU ones where my daughter now goes to college. Uh, and this is uh, some great ones there, including the uh, mini speed football helmet from 2015. It's gorgeous white with sort of the purple trim and the uh, silver horn frog logo. And and we're rooting for TCU because they're still, as we record this, undefeated, although I probably jinxed it. Uh, and uh, and surprising many in uh, NCAA football. All of that kind of stuff and more. You pick the team. They're all there for you at 417helmets.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. It's good seats. And you will save 10% right off the purchase of any of those items that you find at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. Thanks, Judd, for your sponsorship of the show. We appreciate it. All right, let's dig in, shall we? Here's our conversation. Uh, let's get into the fascinating story. The AFL, 1965, civil rights. Uh, the NFL, the idea of a team coming to New Orleans, not yet the Saints. All of that coming up in this conversation with Aaron Sapp uh, and uh, Grayson Sapp. Her Sapp is her last name. Aaron Grayson Sapp is the full name. It's uh, a wonderful conversation. Here it is, please. As always... Enjoy. For whatever reasons, we kind of obsess about, you know, teams and leagues and situations that are uh, no longer around or with us, uh, but, you know, are uh, arguably still uh, either for fun or for import um, good to know about or remember or understand or maybe learn for the first time. Um, The AFL is no uh, stranger to our to our airwaves, right? So uh, American Football League, you know, obviously totemic uh, uh, contributor to what is now the modern day NFL and all that stuff. So that's kind of the hook that kind of drew me to this book. But before I get into sort of my bullion base, give me uh, and our audience a bit of a sense of uh, who you are and, uh, you know, day job, night job, whatever, and how you came to this story uh, in the first place. Well, I was in grad school at Tulane at, towards the end of, of working on my PhD, and I was taking a history course, and I needed to find a, a topic to write a term paper on, and I just start digging through some old newspapers and whatnot, and I come across this story of a boycott by the American Football League of the whole city of New Orleans, right when New Orleans was trying to get a team, and I think, how have I never heard of this before? I've lived in New Orleans for long enough. I've been watching enough football. I can't believe, I don't even know that this happened much less know the whole story and actually be sick of hearing about it. I just, I just couldn't believe it was uh, just something that had never been on my radar. Um, couldn't make it my dissertation topic, but couldn't let it go either. And uh, as soon as I graduated, I was lucky enough to get um, a temporary position at a local archive, the Historic New Orleans Collection. And I could dig through old Sugar Bowl papers and Saints topics and research this book and uh, the more I learned, the more I realized that the that the boycott had made a big difference and was a story people needed to know. And I just became obsessed with getting the story out there. I felt like the men who instigated the walkout deserved some recognition. They deserved to know the difference they made and, and to have other people know the story as well. And so 
that was my motivation to to get this lost story out there. Uh, I forgot the uh, famous author. She's so famous that I forgot her name, uh, who says, uh, if you don't see a book about the topic you're interested in, then you're compelled to write one. So it seems like you fell into that trap. So congratulations there. (laughs) Um, But give me a sense. So so you're studying history, I mean, but not necessarily sports. Um, And I I hear in, in your voice that you... Uh, or in your description, that you might be either a native or have spent a lot of time in New Orleans? I have been in New Orleans since the year before Katrina. I had just enough time to fall in love with New Orleans before, you know, I had to leave it for a while, but I definitely came back. And uh, yeah, I was I was studying American history at, at Tulane, but not necessarily, you know, sports history. It was actually an interdisciplinary degree that also involved English and art history. And so I wasn't really on the path of being a sports writer by any means. Um, but yeah, I just I just couldn't let go of, of the stories. As you say, I realized it wasn't out there and I felt the need to, to be the person to get it out there. All right. So it sounds to me, though, that this story, as I've dug into it, too, right, because I, I was actually surprised in doing my you know crack research that um, uh, it was kind of a pothole of, of historical note. Right. I mean, I, there are a handful of articles, uh, you know, from the old microfiche. Uh, there's a, a couple of mentions of it in, you know, the American Football League documentaries and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, some interviews and stuff. There's been some furtive efforts, I think, to kind of get a documentary together. I don't know if it actually uh, was completed yet. Um, but it feels to me like there's a there's a concentric or a concentricity, to use a, a graduate level word, of, of of different sort of things going on around this time that you sort of discover and uh, laser in on on this boycott. I think one of them is the AFL and the NFL and pro football generally. Um uh, perhaps uh, 1960s America, which, you know, is a backdrop and a foreground for a lot of stuff, civil rights, et cetera. Um, a few individuals like Dave Dixon, which I'm sure who I'm sure we'll talk about. But I guess more importantly, is a place to start. And, I'm, you know, you tell me if you want to go in a different direction. But the city of New Orleans, um, one of the things that we have learned a long time ago as we started the show is that at the, the pursuit of professional sports, especially you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, maybe even still today, um, was almost connoted among civil leaders, civic leaders, uh, to be the official imprint of major league status, right? You don't have a pro team or all the pro teams in the major leagues, right? Nobody's going to take us as a serious major city. Um, I don't want to overload it, but maybe a little bit of background about New Orleans around this time and how maybe that's a starting point for the story because New Orleans is obviously endemic to all of it. That's that's hilarious because my first thought was I think New Orleans had that situation backwards from most other cities, looking at it that that pro sports would make them um, they, they wouldn't be a big league city without that. I think New Orleans was hesitant to be a modern city a progressive city. If you think about it, part of the New Orleans identity is stagnation, a willful stagnation, just preserving these old traditions and this unique heritage that makes it the tourist destination that it is and the unique place that it, that it is. So change really didn't fit with New Orleans's branding. And I think it wasn't so much that pro football would, uh, would show that they were a modern city, I think New Orleans sort of reluctantly had to become a modern city because they wanted football that badly. I think that it happened in the reverse for the city of New Orleans. 
So that's really interesting. Um, I, so how much of your, uh, from your knowledge, just generally as a, as a scholar, how much of that is Southern quote unquote history? How much of that is uh, unique specifically to New Orleans and Louisiana and its, its origins? Um, why do you think that is the case? I think New Orleans's relationship with with change in that sense was different than the rest of the South. Um, New Orleans didn't necessarily consider itself as a, uh, a stereotypical part of the of the Deep South. They've always thought of themselves as something set apart. Um, and we're going to be talking about the racial issue. I think that's true that New Orleans always thought it was ahead of the rest of the South on racial issues, um, given its different background. So I don't think that New Orleans's resistance to modernity, for lack of a better word, was sort of the reactionary entrenchment that you might see in, in other Southern cities in the 50s and 60s. I think it was just a, we are New Orleans, we wanna stay New Orleans. Change is not part of New Orleans. We are this place, I think uh, in the book, I, I quote Time Magazine as, as referring to New Orleans as charming ruins. And it, it's what people know us as, we are this thing, and so if we if we choose progress, if we choose modernity, we're no longer this New Orleans that everybody knows and loves. So I think it was a different sort of resistance than you might find in other southern cities at the time. That's interesting. I, some would call that provincialism or, or a, 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 you know, some kind of unique sort of a, a identity, I guess, approach, which is really interesting right? because you look at, you know, the history, especially in the 60s and 70s, as some of these growing metropolises around the country, right, were angling to get you know, baseball or hockey or NBA franchises as as pro sports was itself growing up. Right. And um, yeah, you 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 occasionally hear or saw New Orleans, you know, discussed as a possibility in those places, but but not as regularly and as um, persistently, I guess, as as you might have a, a thought about or imagine. Maybe that's a modern look back kind of bias. Right. Given where you know, how we look at the de demography of, of the United States today. You know, it's just it's curious, I guess, through a modern lens that that was the case. But I think it's really important to understand because it, it is such a unique city and, and clearly uh, was guiding or not guiding its thought process uh, as to pro sports back then. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, New Orleans had its own interesting relationship with sports, too. I mean, baseball failed and failed and failed and failed again in New Orleans. Um, but there was just something about football that had had a very interesting uh, and strong power over the city that uh, just invited in a lot of change that wouldn't have taken place, I don't think, for much else than football. All right. Well, let's uh, actually look at the reverse of this. So I, I'm, I'm also curious about your process. So as you as you discover the, I don't know, untold story, if you will, of all of this, uh, where do you start? You start with this actual scheduled AFL football game and work your way back from it? And what do you even know of the AFL and the NFL and pro football at that era at this time before you even get into that? I suspect not much about pro the pro football scene then. You mean when I first discovered the story? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, again, that wasn't what I was studying. That wasn't really where I thought my career was going. Um, so yeah, I stumbled upon this story and I think, uh, did, first, I think didn't is a reason it's lost because it didn't really make a difference. And I started researching it forward in the sense to see did did change happen? You know, did 
is the reason the story's lost because nothing ever came of it. Realizing that it had been a big deal and had made a big impact on the city of New Orleans, I thought, well, how did we get here? And so I, I then, as you say, I started tracing it backward and um, and just found this really great, in my opinion, anyway, uh, package that begins when the civil rights movement is just starting to make demands on the city of New Orleans in the mid fifties. And New Orleans handles it in a way that you would expect of lazy, permissive New Orleans. They think, sure, if you're gonna give us good football, we'll make some changes. And integration goes very smoothly. Um, and then there is a statewide backlash, a reactionary backlash that introduces a whole set of, of new um, segregation laws that New Orleans stays under for almost a decade. And so then they have to come out of that and that they're coming out of that when the walkout happens. So yeah, I trace it back to that sort of breaking point. And I follow that story of New Orleans being under this reactionary cloud and trying to find their way out of it. And then when the walkout happens, um, sort of threatening their future in, in football, then you know, big changes come from that. And, and ultimately, spoiler alert, they do get the New Orleans Saints. So that's sort of the package of, of research that I went into. Well, let's let's center in on the event and maybe sort of radiate from there, right? So we're talking about the the American Football League, which which you know, for most of our listeners, right, was the uh, full color, if you will, challenger league to the NFL. Everything uh, that the NFL uh, kind of wasn't uh, wide open passing and and uh, new markets and uh, uh, you know more exciting brand of football, uh, whether it was designed that way or just became that way, uh, and in many respects. Um, became kind of a more exciting alternative and frankly was born by Lamar Hunt and, and his friends back in, you know, the late fifties, early sixties, uh, being not allowed to join the club, right? It was a clubby, you know, a, a historical kind of a cabal of, of, of owners who had been through the twenties, the thirties, the war. And, you know, this NFL thing was just starting to really, uh, you know, uh, the kindling was really starting to catch and it was becoming a true national sport. Um, after decades of, of questionability about of such. Um, but um, I guess before we sort of get to the the, the, um, to the the dynamics of that, this also comes around, this is, New Orleans has been looking at, or has been on the table for various uh, football discussions in the early 60s, right? And I guess Dave Dixon is probably, uh, a, a, an important figure in all this, because it seems in all the research that I've done is that he was almost the chief instigator for getting a pro franchise of some sort to New Orleans circa early 60s. Absolutely. Dave Dixon is the father of the Saints. He did all the legwork, essentially, in landing a pro football team for the city. Um, and he it was a long process for him, too. He started in 1959 originally putting out feelers for a pro club and you know eventually landed one for the 1967 season but it was he is the story to a, a large extent and why what what is he just a, a a native booster type that just you know for for uh, the contribution to the city and take it to the next level or was it uh, his own personal designs uh, for fame and fortune and all that kind of stuff like uh, what is the enigma of dave dixon who by the way most of our listeners also recognize as the founder of or the originator of the idea of the old USFL, too, which is interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. No, Dave Dixon is an incredible figure. He I can tell you his 
motivation was that he loved football and he absolutely loved the city of New Orleans. So it was the best place in the world. But he was just a wide-eyed optimist. He was the most enthusiastic person I have ever encountered. And by encountered, I mean through digging through his personal papers in the archives. But he he was a force, uh, just uh, unflappable. I mean, he he got so close to landing a team so many times. Um, it's almost unbelievable that he kept going and going and going and switching back and forth from trying to get a team from the AFL and then from the NFL and and his dreams just kept getting crushed and he just wouldn't give up so uh yeah he's he's a, a legend in New Orleans but but why was he uh why were the op- what what and why were the obstacles well from the very beginning New Orleans's racial situation was the obstacle between the city having the, the biggest obstacle against the, the city getting a, a professional sports team um, from the very beginning when he just started collaborating with his friends and, and and trying to get other people on board the very first letters he was writing to his friends are all about how new orleans can integrate and how it's going to be okay we can do this it was just take some strategic planning but new orleans can handle this and then he also had to convince the league of the same thing. Oh, we've got this. We're going to get integration under control. And um, he kept being proven wrong. He again, like I said he was a he was a very optimistic, loved his city, and also incredibly naive about the racial situation on the ground. So he kept making bigger promises than he could fill, and he kept getting called out for it um, in the black press, for example. And there were multiple times when, for example, the Afro-American newspaper syndicate out of Baltimore and the well-known Sam Lacey was sending telegrams to the AFL saying, do not move into the city of New Orleans. They are not ready. And for example, on one occasion, pointing out that that AFL game that New Orleans just hosted, well, they had block seating and separate hotels for the players. You cannot move into that town. So these types of things just kept happening. Race was definitely the biggest obstacle that Dave dealt with well before the AFL walkout. That's interesting. And you use the word naive. Hey, uh, I, um, that's, um, I, it, that's, it, that's especially um, uh, important, I guess, because uh, I, I guess what I'm also trying to maybe figure out then is, in the midst of all that is sort of where is his base of uh, I'm assuming financial and political support uh, coming from to keep this idea going and alive and being a legitimate possibility. It sounds like it was absent of uh, a pretty significant swath of the population in New Orleans that not being white, so to speak. Well, his he really didn't have as much support as you might have expected. That's another thing about the city of New Orleans it being so laid back and carefree, everyone just kind of expected everyone else to do the things that needed to be done. And Dave was one of those people who was uh, very gung-ho and and driven and kept making this process go forward, but Dave didn't have a lot of buy-in from the local businessmen or politicians. Uh, Clearly, had he had buy-in from them, perhaps he wouldn't have run into the the troubles that he did with uh, for example, integration. 
Would you say that lack of buy-in, so to speak, was across the racial spectrum? I mean, were there, or was it largely a racially divided sort of dynamic? Well, the as far as I can tell from my research, the black population in New Orleans supported the push for protein, but could not say they're going to support it under segregation conditions. Uh, so he did get pushed back while he was still trying to sort of ride the fine line um, to keep everybody happy. He was getting pushed back locally. Um, but there wasn't a lot of pushback from, let's say, white New Orleanians against the segregation, uh, excuse me, the integration that he was calling for. There was just a, a slowness and uh, a lack of, of motivation to, to have progress move forward. And so it was just, for New Orleans, it, it's a strange dynamic that that tends to be the answer, that everything was just slow, not necessarily so divisive, um, not some heated battle, but just just very slow in, in moving forward. Yeah, it's 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 really this interesting. Uh, so the um, so his attempt though, so you say fifty nine, sixty or so, was he was Dixon trying to get a an NFL franchise from the outset, or was the AFL and its new arrival his sort of uh, I don't know his uh, uh, his entree into pursuit? Yes, he did start with the AFL when they were when he heard that they were forming. He met with uh, Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams and tried to get New Orleans in for the inaugural season. Um, I think the biggest problem he met with there was an appropriate stadium. Um, Tulane was not about to just say, "Sure, we'll sign on real quick to this idea you have." It was going to take a lot more work and time for for the university to sign on and the. City Park Stadium that he did have at his disposal was not considered to be of high enough quality for the AFL. So that was kind of what kept him out, in my understanding, from making it into the AFL for that inaugural season. And then after that, he kept switching back and forth between the AFL and the NFL, depending on what was going on and you know what problems he had met from one league and then running off to the other league. Uh, so it was, it was a, quite the love affair for Dave. Part of that, though, I think uh, included, I think you hinted at it before, there were some, um, I don't know, could you call them proof of concept games, an exhibition game or two to kind of sort of prove maybe that the market was viable? Was, was there any of those? I think there were. Oh, that was fantastic. Um, yeah, actually, another local promoter had um, a Major League Baseball and a National Football League uh, exhibition in 1960. and then again, hosted an AFL exhibition in 1962 when Dave was very close to getting an AFL team. Dave had been meeting with Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams and things were really moving along. Uh, he had sent earnest money to the league. Um, he had gotten approval to use City Park for a pro team. Um, he was on the, the next owner's meeting schedule to make his final pitch for the team. They'd already been talking about player stockpiling and season ticket drives. And the other promoter, his name was Defee, he had um, another exhibition game planned at that time for the summer of 62. And it was an absolute sellout. It, there, the permanent seats were taken. The temporary bleachers they erected were completely filled. This, this is at, I'm sorry, this is at Tulane Stadium, correct? This was actually at City Park. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Um, and yeah, Dave did decide eventually that he could he could handle City Park because he wanted football that badly. <laughs> so he did, um, and Defeat did as well to use City Park in the in the early years. So um, this was a complete sellout. Proved to the end, um, well, to to both leagues what a great fan base New Orleans had. Um, fans were turned away. It was it was exceptional, and so from the beginning both leagues were aware that this was a fan base they wanted to lock down it was fantastic but again after that game black newspapers started printing stories about the separate accommodations the block seating that was just sort of snuck in i mean tickets were supposed to be sold open but you know they just they just slipped in the block seating and um so the exhibition games that were used to prove to the league that New Orleans would be a great league city um, were a double-edged sword. They proved that they had, the fan base was great, but that there was a lot of, of work left to do on the racial front. Yeah, intriguing. And and frankly, also, it brings a lot of things to uh, to the foreground, right? And, and it's not unimportant to remember uh, the general tenor and various forms of change or not change that were going on nationwide and or in the region too, because um, some of those were same, similar and some of those were uh, separate. Um, you know, 1964, right, the, the, the Civil Rights Act, right, which historic, obviously, uh, through the lens of time, you know, uh, just it, 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 a totemic event in this nation's history for a, a whole bunch of different reasons. But, you know, the general South, and again, we've already established that New Orleans enjoys being uniquely different, say, from the, you know, the proverbial South. Um, it, it, it is an explosive time, right? And and there's a lot of pushback by a lot of different entities. And there's also a lot of uh, embrace and, and uh, you know, the about time and, and, and progress, uh, uh, both sort of at the same time. So this backdrop of what's going on across the country and the region is not unimportant because um, while the pursuit of a pro football team for a city is, uh, uh, is certainly the, the center of the story, it, it, it cannot be ignored about what's going on around uh, that pursuit. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things that came out of researching this, this book was the origins of the Atlanta-New Orleans football rivalry. Uh, because Atlanta and New Orleans, when, when the book opens, New Orleans looks like it's a little bit ahead of the rest of the South. And from that moment on, Atlanta just shoots ahead. And they are making big strides uh, on the civil rights front. And New Orleans, of course, is just sort of staying stagnant, as it does. And they're both trying to get a team at the same time. And they keep flip-flopping between being competitors for a team and then needing to maybe be companions to go in as a two-team addition to a league. And so it's just this interesting dynamic. And it also, as you say, it just makes it so much clearer what was going on at that time period in the South, uh, you know, one city embracing civil rights in a very exceptional way, and the sister city that has a completely different outlook on things. Uh, it, and then it comes it all comes back to football. And, you know, even before these two cities had teams, they were very strong football rivals. I mean, I, there's a there's a later exhibition game in the city of New Orleans when there's also an exhibition game happening in Atlanta and the announcer announces the 
the attendance figures for the two cities and the crowd goes berserk louder than they were cheering for the actual football that they were there to watch. So it's just a super fun, interesting, telling dynamic, this this comparison of the two cities at the time. Well, you know, and the NFL is not blameless in any of this either, right? I mean, uh, even prior to that is, um, you know, uh, blatantly is probably an understatement, Frank, a racist uh, owner in the Washington, uh, then known as Redskins, George Preston Marshall, right? I mean, um, in many respects, that Washington football franchise in his mind was the NFL's, if you will, Southern region franchise, right? So the Atlanta, the New Orleanses, and, and later the, the Floridas of the world and stuff, you know, he, and frankly, with kind of a, you know, a wink and a blink from the league, his fellow league owners were kind of like, okay, that's your region, go for it. Right. And, but yet, um, obviously the devil's bargain, I guess, is, as as part of that um, is, you know, in some respects that actually is also sort of an underlying current to sort of the explosive change. And maybe the AFL is partially, or maybe, you know, partially uh, part of some of that. And that this is a huge region that um, is in, in a lot of different areas, progressive and ready for uh, the big league uh, city and football treatment. Yeah. The, the difference between the, the both leagues thought it would be really great to have a flag planted in the Southeast. It was virgin territory, complicated territory, but virgin territory. And, um, but in the leagues had a different relationship with that. Um, it's interesting to me that the AFL had a reputation for really advancing um, the status of the black athlete in pro football, um, scouting more aggressively to black colleges, um, you know, having, a higher number of black employees. Um, but at the same time, the NFL under Pete Rozelle's uh, leadership and post um, the Washington Redskin immigration that you were just referring to, um, they were doing a lot of cleaning up in a more aggressive sense that, um, for example, they were um, boycotting cities that they might have previously had exhibition games in if they didn't have full integration um, th taking steps like that, that the AFL strangely was not taking as aggressively. And I, in my opinion, I think that that could be explained at least in part by the fact that it was head headed by two Texans, uh, Bud Adams and Lamar Hunt, who um, were certainly um, very progressive when you're speaking about civil rights, but they had witnessed the growing pains of civil rights in Southern cities, in Dallas and Houston, and had more faith in the process. I think they had more faith that it will get worked out. They kept coming back to Dave Dixon in New Orleans and giving them another shot in a way that you would be kind of surprising. And even quite quickly after maybe some sort of debacle and scandal, they would come back and, and reignite talks with Dave, for example. And I, it, it seems kind of surprising, but I think that the reason was not that they didn't care, but just that they maybe had a little more faith and patience in the process of of racial problems getting worked out because they had witnessed it in their own towns. Well, I mean, th that said, right, we also cannot uh, ignore the fact that that they're businessmen, right, uh, in successes and, and and frankly, in pro sports around that time, especially, right, uh, the, it pretty much um, uh, either well, let's put it this way: either success in other forms of of business or or, or life, and then becoming 
um, a franchise owner and whatnot. I mean, the business realities, right? You strip away all the progressivism and the uh, uh, the, the process and, and the quote unquote virgin territory and the difficulties of of markets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the reality is that, you know, at the end of the day, if they're going to create a viable alternative to the NFL, uh, maybe achieve a merger or some other, or just grow the pie, um, you know, from a pure business perspective, it, it seems like a logical thing to do, but, you know, clearly a complicated uh, a business mindset that, you know, it seems like even, it seems like Dave Dixon probably didn't sort of fully enter into his calculus. Maybe the other guys did. I don't know. I don't know. It is curious to I've, I've, for example, I've had uh, a chance to look at old AFL records um, up at the the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and uh, it was clear that, for example, after the walkout, that there was a tricky um, calculus to be done. There was the need to support your players and not lose any more fans on the basis of, um, you know, having put a game in a city where that would happen to your players. Um, any more backlash from civil rights groups or the black press, but also just from a businessman's perspective, uh, not agreeing with just immediately canceling an event that you had invested in. It, it was an interesting, um, careful game they had to play to figure out just the right response and how to how to handle it um, from a PR standpoint and a bottom line standpoint. All right. Well, let's let's talk. Let's let's get to the the actual uh, the, the 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 game and the origins of this game and stuff, right? So, um, you know, for uh, so for some background, I mean, um, uh, ABC for the first half of the decade uh, and NBC for the latter half of the decade were uh, gung ho on on broadcasting uh, the American Football League. It was you know, it's new football, it's new markets, all that kind of stuff, and and was uh, maybe surprisingly to some uh, drawing great audiences with a, a very attractive. Uh, product part of that uh, that development of the AFL was this uh, AFL All Star Game. I don't think they did it in their first season, but from '61 onward, well, the '61 season, 1962 January is when they usually ran these games. Um, onward, uh, they had uh, essentially what we kind of know, or frankly used to know, as the Pro Bowl kind of thing, but for the AFL. Um, uh, I guess as a showcase, right? The uh, an All Star Game makes a a ton of sense. Can you kind of give our audience a sense of sort of the uh, how this game came to be? It sounds like it's a another, shall we say, perfect exhibition opportunity for Dixon and friends to show that New Orleans is ready for pro football yet again. Absolutely. Dave was hitting both leagues from every angle. He kept lining up more and more uh, exhibition games. He approached both leagues, actually. He asked the NFL to move the Pro Bowl uh to New Orleans and they did, they refused, but uh, he, then he hit up the AFL for their all-star game for that reason, just like you say, to, to show the leagues that New Orleans would be a great candidate uh, to join the circuit. And I, he didn't stop there. I mean, he was trying to get both leagues to move their championship game to New Orleans and reconfigure their playoff system so that it would end in warm weather, neutral New Orleans, to have that be the new site. He was hitting both both leagues up for, with that idea. So yeah, the landing the AFL All-Star game in, for 1965 was just another one of the ways he was chipping away and just doing everything he could to uh, to sell the city to one, one or both of the leagues. 
See, that's interesting because in some respects, I hear the seeds of of what ultimately became, you know, the Super Bowl, right? Uh, as a neutral, preferably warm weather exclamation point to one's season. I almost wonder now that you mentioned that if if almost Dixon was maybe the I wouldn't say uncredited idea generator for that idea, but it sounds like New Orleans uh, uniquely is uh, suited for that idea, which sounded a little unconventional at the time. Yeah, I do know that um, anytime that the press, after the merger was announced, anytime any member of the New Orleans press could get Pete Roselle's attention, they always wanted to know if New Orleans was going to be the site for what some people were calling already the Super Bowl. Uh, so it definitely was something that I think was connected to New Orleans, um, perhaps just because of the timing that way, but, but yeah, very well could be. So uh, um, roughly when was this, uh, when was the selection of New Orleans announced and um, was there any sort of um, uh, intrigue or, or, or shenanigans or whatever in finally getting the, uh, the designation that uh, New Orleans would be the spot for um, the, the, uh, 1966 game, correct? But but for the 96 65 season, is that was that right? Uh, 65 game for the 64 season. There you go. Sorry, I knew I'd screw that up. I you know <laughs> I, I, I I practiced and everything. This was by the way the last season I think that ABC was carrying the games. So that uh, we're talking about January 16th, 1965, the celebration, if you will, of the 64 season. Um, so when was it announced, and 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 what was the drama, if any, of the announcement and the, the, the post-announcement and all that kind of stuff, the lead up? Well, um, ironically, it was announced, I don't have it in front of me, but it was either right before or right after, and I'm talking days, um, right before, or right after Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Interesting. That is when it was announced that the game would be moved, to, uh, I think, from San Diego to uh, New Orleans. On and- oh, so, Okay, before you go further, on purpose? Or happenstance? Oh, I, I think happenstance. It's just funny to me that I'm studying the game because of civil rights and, and that I see that they get this game, you know, right with those back-to-back announcements. Um, and uh, interestingly, on that note, I think that that's part of what set New Orleans up for the disaster that ended up being the walkout of the players from the All-Star game was that the Civil Rights Act is signed um, New Orleans leaders come out quickly and say, we are going to comply. We don't want any violence. We don't want any pushback. And New Orleans fares well. They, they take it in stride. There's no major violence, no riots, anything like that. There's also not widespread compliance, but New Orleans is patting itself on the back because it didn't make any, any bad headlines. They seem to be doing well. They've, they've come out from under all these segregation laws they've been under for years. They're doing well. They're back to their status quo. They're this wonderful progressive town they always thought they were. And they were just very complacent in that. And um, again, there's, there's a naivety aspect to this as well. Um, so I think that's part of what sort of set New Orleans up for bringing in this big game and thinking they were ready. and then everything just sort of blew up on them. I have a great quote from one of the AFL players afterwards who said, called it a false sense of full integration. And I think it's exactly what New Orleans had, a false sense of full integration, not realizing how far behind they'd gotten over the last almost decade of living under a rock of segregation and not realizing how much catching up they had to do to participate in modern America. 
So tell me about sort of the lead into the game. Obviously, this is literally uh, announced uh, days after the uh, the signing and the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 64. The game essentially scheduled about oh, roughly, what, six months after that. Um, but uh, um, so Tulane Stadium is uh, is the location. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the Sugar Bowl, right, the college game uh, of 65 is just, uh, just before um, – about a week or two before this game on the schedule, um, there was little, what I know that was a, that was also a pretty interesting and crucial uh, point in time, because if I have a, I mean, it says what in my research here, it was the first fully integrated sugar bowl. I don't know essentially what that means. I mean, the first time that African-American players were playing in a, in a college bowl game in new Orleans, but um, it sounds like if that's the case, it didn't sound like there was a whole lot of uh, uh, there were not a lot of issues with regard to that game uh, prior. Right. The, um, it was actually the first fully integrated game uh, since the big host of segregation laws that I talked about from 1956. There in the 1956 Sugar Bowl did have integrated stands, partially integrated stands and an integrated team. 1965 game that yes was just about a week before the AFL All-Star game um, had fully integrated stands and an integrated team Um, and it was praised widespread for how well it went off it was Syracuse versus LSU Syracuse of course being integrated LSU not being but the teams just showed the greatest sportsmanship the Sugar Bowl hosts were hospitable everything just went off so smoothly to the naked eye, so to speak, um, that it did get just amazing praise and everybody thought, see, New Orleans can handle this. Everything is 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 going well. The, there were problems though that didn't get very much press. Um, some of the Syracuse players did, for example, uh, have trouble getting taxis and then have doors shut on their faces, trying to go to places um, on like St. Charles Avenue or, or Bourbon Street. And so these stories didn't get as much attention. The widespread account was that the Sugar Bowl pulled off integration with no problems and you know New Orleans is ready for integrated sports. So how does the uh, how does the arriving the arriving teams, uh, I guess a, a number of days, maybe a week before the all-star game, uh, maybe some specifics or or some particular uh, particular uh, people involved. What were they experiencing? These players as they were coming to New Orleans, uh, getting ready ostensibly for the game. Well, it didn't take long. Um, as soon as players get to town, they're at the airport. One of them didn't even make it out of the airport. Uh, I think it was Earl Faison didn't even make it out of the airport before he was insulted. Um, the N word was used in his direction and um, other players would arrive, put their bags down on the curb outside the airport and watch taxi cabs just fly past them, wait for hours for an African-American taxi driver to come pick them up. Uh, So a lot of trouble just getting to the hotel. And this is as soon as they land in New Orleans, they're they're running into problems like this. And, um, you know, for some of them, as soon as they got to the hotel, uh, they ran into more trouble. Some were told not to use the main elevator to please use the side elevator. Uh, others were told they couldn't eat in, in the restaurant in the hotel they were staying in. Um, 
some were insulted in the elevator of the hotel. Um, it was just one problem after another, and they had not been in the city of New Orleans for more than 24 hours before they got together, talked about all the problems, put together this long list of, of all the ways they'd been insulted and, and discriminated against and decided to walk out. So it really, it didn't, it didn't even take a day. I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm flabbergasted, of course, uh, and again, through the lens of, of history and looking back and stuff. But um, I, I guess the, the immediate question, and, and this was probably uh, born in naivete myself, is why such um, why such open hostility and disdain? I mean, especially given the sh- a sugar bowl where it seems like people bent over backwards. Uh, um, I, I just it just seems so incongruent, like because they're pro players, because, you know, because it's a bigger spotlight, perhaps uh, 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 something. I just feels so uh, over the top. It does. And I think part of it is because, as I said, you know, the Civil Rights Act had just been passed uh, and New Orleans got credit for not having any major violence or anything. But a lot of places like touristy spots like the Roosevelt Hotel, like nightclubs on Bourbon Street hadn't even been tested yet. There hadn't even been a black presence there yet. Um, it was very slow for, for civil rights leaders in New Orleans to, to test the more touristy popular establishments. And so these things just hadn't happened yet. So I don't know if it was just the, the suddenness that it was, it hadn't, hadn't even been addressed yet. Um, and it also makes you wonder, how, how many people in a hotel or on Bourbon Street are locals and how many aren't. So that makes me think about just the, the aura, the atmosphere of New Orleans that it at that time still seemed like a place that that was acceptable in. So I think there, there are several factors uh, at play in that way. And the genesis of the actual boycott itself, people uh, coming together, uh, a decision, a vote, was there a vote? There were a couple of votes. There was an initial vote by the 21 black players um, and they agreed unanimously that they would leave. Then sponsors called them all back to the Roosevelt Hotel to try to convince them to stay. And after a lot of negotiating and talking, um, they took two more votes. One, they decided that no matter how the final vote went, they would act in unison even if it wasn't unanimous. And the, that vote on whether or not to leave actually was not unanimous um, in the end, but they all walked out together as a, as a team. And uh, two figures in particular um, seem to stand out, again, based on my crack research, you're the expert. Um, Ernie Ladd, who was playing for the Chargers of San Diego and uh, Cookie Gilchrist um, seemed like they were kind of the, um, I guess the the, the chief uh, definers of 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 this situation. I number one is that true? Number two, um, uh, I get the sense that if there were some disdaining votes from a boycott, um, maybe it, was there some thought of maybe it would send a different or more strong statement by actually going through and playing the game. Uh, I'm just curious as to what the debate was, so to speak. That was one argument um, that I know was made to the players. I'm not sure about amongst the black players themselves, but that, yes, what about the idea of staying and making a statement here rather than just leaving? Um, so that that played into the debate to some extent. As far as who it, um, instigated it, I, I love that you also 
have the impression that Cookie Gilchrist um, was a big player in it because that was one of the most surprising things when I got deep into the research was to find out that he actually was not. It, um, he had such a reputation as a hothead and an instigator. Uh, as soon as he landed in New Orleans, he went to the Delta counter to make a complaint. And realizing who he was, the person behind the counter immediately said, you're not gonna give us any trouble, are you? He just had this widespread reputation as a hothead and an instigator, but he had an exceptionally good treatment in New Orleans. He didn't even know anyone had had trouble getting a taxi cab until the next day when he got a phone call at his in his hotel room saying, hey, come on, we're all leaving. And he says, stop playing around, man. This is too serious. You're not leaving. He had no idea any of it had happened. So he, I think just because he already had that reputation, that story, I, I had read that version of the story myself before I dug deeper and like saw so an interview he did and, and a different account he gave. Uh, it was it was so interesting to me to realize that he had very little to do with the, he had nothing to do with the idea of the walkout and very little uh, to do with with even the debate. He was really sort of a a side player in it all. That's interesting. Well, arguably, this is why we discuss this and why I think the book is is so uh, uh, enlightening as to sort of uh, the, the you know what really really happened. Um, I, I guess the other sort of dynamic I'm curious about, uh, and you weren't, you and I are, but we're not in the room, right? But uh, based on your research, um, uh, of the non-Black players, I'm wondering where they were kind of settling into this conversation. How many, uh, if any, were in support or not in support of uh, of this dynamic? Um, I'm sure I'm sure it was a very heated amount of uh, uh, hours uh, trying to sort of flesh out the issues and, and what we or we shouldn't be doing oh that's a great story i i love this aspect of it um the first white player to engage the black players as they're discussing the walkout was ron mix he asked his coach if he could get off the bus the bus which was full of only white players because all the black players were in the hotel room discussing the walkout he got off the bus um went and made a very long speech uh, about how he felt for them. He knew that their motivation was pure. He hated what had happened to them, but he just didn't think punishing the whole city for the actions of a few people was the right answer and that perhaps they should stay, make a statement by staying. And uh, it was it was a long conversation and the black players said things back to him like, you know, you don't realize everything we went through. And they started relaying all their stories one after another to him. And he went back to his room and lay across his bed and just felt drained and, and felt like, you know, I, I can see that I didn't make a difference. If anything, I might've made them angrier. And uh, I know that they're going to walk out. And then he decided, and I'm going to walk out with them. He said, I want there to be at least one, white player who says, I'm with you. And um, funny, he had just given an interview like the day before to a local reporter saying, you know, the best thing about playing pro football is is being with the guys and, and being in unison with the guys, even in times of misery. And I'm sure he didn't know how profound that was <laughs> when he said it. But uh, then uh, before, the, before the black players actually left, they did meet with their white uh, teammates and Ron Mix did want to be one player who said, we're with you, but it turned out one after another, uh, you know, Jack Kemp, Babe Pearly, one after another, Jerry Mays, they all just said, hey, I'm going to, if you're going, I'm going. And there, I did not read an account of a single white player 
who objected. I don't know about, you know, their personal feelings that didn't make it into any any reports, but I I never came across any uh, stories of white players who who were against the walkout. And actually, uh, interestingly, um, the Players Association met with the owners at that owners meeting that was then moved to Houston. And they were expected to give a speech that was very divisive, complaining about rookie salaries versus veteran salaries, Joe Namath's big bonuses, very divisive issues. And they basically said, we've come to a new understanding of the relations of men. And it was a very unified, very um, team focused sort of statement that they ended up giving to the to the owners. So uh, it was it was really cool to see that the event did go down as uh, all the players in full agreement. Um, OK, so, so mechanically, and I don't want to give away all of the book, right, because we want to encourage people to read it because this is a, it's this amazing uh uh, detail and uh, and um, uh, dynamics of this. So I, the game, right? Scheduled for January sixteenth. Um, when does this uh, boycott uh, get sort of uh, congealed into a thing? And how does it how does it get communicated? And and what what is the what is the what happens? Right? Because uh, Commissioner Joe Foss had to make a decision. It looks like he made a decision to change the site of the game because of all this. Right. Yeah, I think the walkout was official on the 11th. Um, so they had about five days to throw things together. Uh, the idea was that the AFL did not want their game to go down as a strike. They wanted to do whatever they could to salvage it. And I, immediately Miami called them up and said, hey, we'll host it. Um, they'd already actually accepted a conference that New Orleans lost because of some racial issues and they successfully hosted it. But the league decided we've taken enough chances Let's stay in, in the league. So they, in Houston was very close, uh, you know, geographically. So Houston was chosen. They thought they could rush everything over there quickly. It was, it was kind of humorous. Some guys, I mean, black guys left. I mean, they did not wait around. They said they were walking out and they did. Some of them had just gotten home. Then they get back on another plane and go to Houston. A couple of guys were driving from New Orleans to the Grambling area, Lincoln Parish. And they hear on the radio that the game got moved to Houston and they just get it back on I-10 and head towards Houston. So it was very rushed and chaotic. Um, but I think the, the idea of moving it to Houston was just to do everything they could to salvage it as simply as possible. Did any of the players not go at all? No, the only player I've come across who didn't go to the game, I wondered that myself and I, I looked further and it appears that he just had backed out of um not backed out for bad reasons, but um, could not make the game in general. Um, so it wouldn't have been in New Orleans either. So I haven't read of any any players who, who didn't go to Houston. All right. Well, um, I, and I, I'm not sure there's any game footage from ABC uh, of that game. Did you discover any by any chance? Sadly, no. I have watched a lot of VHS game tapes in this process, but that wasn't one I could get my hands on. Yeah, because I'm really curious as to how, if at all, was uh, it uh, described and the situation to the audience? I mean, did they, you know, kind of, I, I, I can't imagine that they would have not only acknowledged the fact that they're only playing in front of 15,000 people in Houston when, you know, uh, a week prior it was scheduled to be at a sold out uh, Tulane Stadium. I've wondered that myself. I would love to hear what the announcer said and how it was handled. Um, but the only thing I know is uh, Joe Foss's 
quote in the in the program that they hastily threw together for that game, just thanking Houston for handling it in such big league fashion, which I felt like was a little jab to New Orleans for not being a big league status. All right. Well, I, I know this is hard to sort of. Uh, so how do we how can we cul-de-sac this for the aftermath? Right. Because the, the there are effects on this boycott and what's happened uh, on the trajectory of the AFL, uh, the trajectory of uh, a pro football franchise uh, coming uh, possibly somehow or not to New Orleans uh, and what ultimately became the Saints in the NFL. I mean, when you think about it in the moment, I think the last thing most people would kind of imagine at that moment would be that there would be pro football by the end of the decade in New Orleans. Um, and I guess the immediate aftermath was that the AFL was like, that's it. We're not, I mean, we, we're not even going to touch New Orleans going forward, right? Right. Yeah, the, the AFL definitely knew they had to distance themselves from New Orleans, even though some of them kind of felt bad because they had befriended Dave Dixon. And, uh, but they knew the only viable stance was to definitely distance themselves from the AFL, I mean, from, from New Orleans. And uh, yeah, it also played out when uh, within six months, the NFL and the AFL are battling over sp- their top spots in, in the South and they're fighting over Atlanta. And Dave gets excited because he thinks maybe whoever loses is going to come looking his way. And uh, even ends up having a conversation with Lamar Hunt at that time about it. But I think, as you say, the AFL just had to distance themselves from New Orleans, uh, no matter how good of friends Lamar and Dave were. And as you know, Miami got the nod from the AFL instead. But how then does Dixon somehow continue and then successfully bring the NFL to the city by the end of the decade? Is it Roselle seeking opportunism? Is there a nobility out there? Is it a just a vacuum now? Uh, I mean, I, I'm just really curious because it just seems like uh, I, it feels in the immediate aftermath of this situation, it's fine. I find it incredibly hard to believe that a pro team comes about relatively shortly thereafter. It's a great story. And I think the answer is going to also answer how the story got lost because uh, when the walkout happens, New Orleans realizes as you say, their shot for going pro in either league is is most likely ruined for quite a while. And uh, at first, they just kind of stew. They're angry. Um, they think it was unfair that the AFL walked out and did, you know blacklisted them that way. And then, after Atlanta goes into the NFL, the NFL announces that they're going to expand again within a year. And that was like a starter's pistol went off. It got everyone excited to show the NFL that the AFL was wrong, show the NFL that we're a united progressive city. And the, just the atmosphere in New Orleans changed. Suddenly it was okay to want progress and to push for change in a city that always resisted change and always just wanted to preserve its, its heritage and traditions. So there was this immediate switch and a massive drive to clean up the city to get the city where it needed to be to house a pro team. Um, and a lot of it was, was concrete things like integrating taxis and restaurants and clubs, um, things like municipal hiring of African-Americans, um, things of that nature that, that you can calculate. Uh, there was also just, as I say, just 
the um, massive drive, massive push for change, it suddenly became okay to to speak that way and to, and to be open about a liberal agenda. And all of this is framed as, let's show them how progressive we were all along. So they don't exactly advertise that they changed, the city just advertises that it is what it needs to be. So in that way, the locals kind of just brushed the story under, under the rug and just kept insisting that they'd always been this progressive deserving city. And so the change did take place and New Orleans had made big improvements in this short amount of time. It did happen and it did happen very quickly, but it also helped considerably that when the AFL and NFL decided to merge that they needed antitrust legislation approved by Congress. And Louisiana had two very influential congressmen at the time that um, greased that legislation through for Pete Rozelle and earned them a promise of a team. So that was the other version of the story that got accepted that New Orleans got a team in 1967 or it was granted in 1966 because of this handshake between Hale Boggs and Pete Rozelle. And New Orleans loved that story. I mean, shady politics, New Orleans will claim that. They'll <laughs> stick with that story. But the story of having to clean up their racial situation really quickly, well, that wasn't their favorite part. So let's just let's just put that back under the rug and and we'll stick to, the, to this story. So that is how they got a team as quickly as they did after the walkout. But the improvements did happen as well. All right. Well, so maybe you can characterize them. What 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 how and if this boycott, the success of it, did, did it achieve essentially what it, it kind of. Um, it aimed to do. I, I argue it came together pretty quickly. I'm not sure there was a whole lot of forethought, but it was just in the moment the, and the right thing to do amongst those who made the decision. Um, would you, based on the depth, and obviously we've only, you know, kind of scratched the surface in some of the more uh, intricate issues and 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 the, the, the dynamics of all this, but um, I mean, I, I, I look on a couple of levels, right? I mean, NFL franchise achieved, right? Don Dixon seems like he had a, that's a win in his column. Uh, New Orleans, you know, gets sort of, uh, I don't know, an excuse to be a ma considered a major city, even though maybe some of the the major issues that were kind of driving this boycott and prior to it um, were not necessarily directly addressed. Um, there's a question in there somewhere. What do you think the specific event and uh, what came about it? I mean, do you think mission accomplished or it's is it more murky than that i suspect it's the latter well that's interesting because i know you said that you've seen some small accounts of uh, you know maybe a partial documentary or uh things like that that have described the walkout i've also seen accounts that were rather brief and considered the walkout a success because it moved the game and it showed the power of black athletes. And it did that. I lament that it got lost, that it, it had much bigger implications than that, um, a much greater effect. And I do believe it was a success uh, because it, as one of the players said, I mean, while still in New Orleans, walking out of the hotel, like talking to the press, as I said before, you know, said there was a false sense of full integration. It showed New Orleans, you think you're progressive and cosmopolitan, look how far you have to go. It made that very clear and it set it in motion. And 
as I said, I, I hate that, well, I hate that many of these players have died without probably realizing themselves just how much of an, an impact the walkout did have. It did even more than just show that there was the power of, of the black athlete um, moving the game, all of that. It, it really set things in motion in New Orleans in a big way that has never really been detailed before. And that was, as I said, always my motivation was to get these guys some recognition for that. I certainly um, don't mean to fairy tale it out and act like there weren't any racial problems after that or that there aren't any now. Of course, I would never make any claims like that, but the progress that it set in motion was very real. And I do think, I do think that it was successful in that way. And I think just according to what I've seen some of the players say about their motivation for the walkout, I think they would have considered it a success because the point was to point out what was wrong in New Orleans and that it wasn't acceptable at its most basic form. And I, I do think that they achieved that as well. You know, I, it really feels to me like uh, it was it's almost a um, an underreported or under remembered turning point um, for a bunch of concentric uh, themes. Right. Uh, New Orleans, for sure. Uh, pro football. Right. Uh, and the merger and all that kind of stuff. And and and, um, uh, you know, and black athletes and their. Uh, not only contributions, but influence and, um, you know, outsized importance in uh, in society, but obviously reflected through sports and pro football. Um, this feels like a powder keg of a of a story that, frankly, is, um, you know, much more, I think, important maybe than most people realize or didn't even know about. Exactly. I mean, that's how I've, I've always felt about it, that it, it is an important story for, for so many different people, for so many different reasons, as you say. I, I, it is still kind of surprising to me that it got hidden for so long. Uh, but then there are explanations of, of how that happened, of course, you know, as we were just saying, um, with the shady politics and the, the pridefulness of New Orleanians and all these factors that just sort of kept the story tucked away. But for, as you say, for it to intersect so many different important realms, it, it makes it kind of shocking that it's been tucked away. Well, as I, as we wrap up here, I'll, I'll say it more pointedly. There's also the hagiography of the NFL, right, uh, which has plenty of issues, uh, but is the king of pro sports in this country, right? Uh, um, and, you know, as the history gets um, uh, refined, shall we say, uh, you know, there's sort of that um, you know, people look at the AFL for those who even know what the AFL is. Hint, look at the AFC. That's where it came from. Um, you know, there's this sort of, oh, Challenger League, 10 years, lots of colorful games, you know, much more open passing, uh, uh, more new markets. Boom. You know, it's just an instant uh, gigantic expansion and stuff. And, you know, the challengers and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, things like this, right? Uh, not only an undercurrent, but frankly, in, 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 in some cases, like this all-star game boycott, right? Right at the forefront. Absolutely. And I've always, I really thought that the NFL would want to embrace this story. Although, as you said, they're not blameless in this entire saga of, of what football was like in the fifties and sixties, but um, it shows that love of NFL football can dramatically transform a broken city. You know, it's, it's a really great feel good story. And uh, I've, I've got to admit one other thing about my motivation for writing the book was, was always to give these guys some actual recognition 
I would love to get the story in front of someone with the NFL and let these guys stand on a sideline of a game and, and wave to the crowd. I mean, I just feel like they, the, the NFL should embrace this story and give the few remaining all-stars that we, we still have with us some, some gratitude and recognition. I just, I, I'm a dreamer, but I would love to see that happen for these guys. Well, that's my last question is, is where, and we obsess about some of this kind of stuff, you know, especially when it comes to teams and leagues that, you know, depart or they go to another city and, and is there a retroactive continuity thing like the Cleveland Browns or the, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's all, all kinds of hiccups and stuff to make, shall we say history more convenient. Um, and it's a cynical comment, but it's true in some cases, sadly. Um, we, um, how much or how little, if at all, have the Saints and or the NFL uh, embraced this story, remembered it, commemorate it? Uh, or if not, might this book and the promotion around it perhaps uh, spur such somewhere, somehow, some way? I absolutely hope so, because to answer your first question, I don't think the Saints and or the NFL have acknowledged this story. OK, that might not be fair because the Pro Football Hall of Fame has a little video clip of Ron Mix talking about the walkout and maybe some other guys are interviewed in videos. I haven't been there in years, but there is acknowledgement of it in at least video form in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So it is acknowledged and recognized to that extent. But as far as really celebrating it and commemorating it and giving recognition to the players who, who instigated the walkout, I've sadly never come across any example of that. And as I said, that has been my very uh, sort of Dave Dixon level optimism while I was writing the book to to hopefully get these few remaining guys and perhaps the families of the guys we don't have with us anymore some recognition for being courageous taking this brave step and and making a, a real change okay our thanks to aaron uh much interestingness there in this conversation much interestingness also in the actual book, which goes into much more depth. And you will be rewarded by purchasing a copy and reading it for yourself. It is called, again, Moving the Chains, the Civil Rights Protest that Saved the Saints and Transformed New Orleans. It is published by LSU Press. It is available right now wherever you find good books. Of course, you can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Aaron Grayson Sapp, number 284, if you're scoring at home, and uh, you'll find a convenient link that'll take you to Amazon. Uh, probably the quickest way you can get this book, you get it in paperback form or in Kindle fashion. And uh, however you would like to uh, expedite said book coming to your domiciled location, uh, you will uh, be rewarded uh, very quickly uh, thereafter. Uh, let's see. While you're online, you can uh, also uh, follow us on various social media. Now, as of this moment, we're still sticking with uh, Instagram, with Facebook and with Twitter. Uh, but we uh, are clearly trying to look for some other places. Uh, we're also on YouTube. Uh, let me give you those handles. You can follow us there as long as we can hold on in those places. Uh, on Twitter, we'll uh, be found at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you will find us at Good Seats Still Available. On Facebook, you can find us on Good uh, on at 
Good Seats Still Available. And on YouTube, our new handle is at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, email, you can uh, send us some at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, what else? Uh, I think that's kind of it. Thank you, Jerry Payne, the good doctor, for all your uh, knob twiddling. We appreciate that. Uh, and thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. And uh, hope you'll stick around for next week's episode. Who knows what we'll be talking about. By I'm sure it'll be interesting for sure. And uh, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Take care until next week. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.